should say the bitter and the sweet on it. Before we get started on today's text, I want to say something about last week's message. Uh, at the beginning of that sermon, I spoke about the collective panic over the snowstorm and in an attempt to imitate an immature person, some people felt that I took the Lord's name in vain and they were offended and it was not a wise choice of words. And so for that, I apologize. If you were offended, I would ask that you would forgive me. With that said, today we are continuing on in the book of Revelation, so please open your Bibles to chapter 10. We're going to do all of chapter 10 today. Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Please listen carefully as this is the word of God. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of a giant angel and having to eat a scroll, of being assured that everything God says will be fulfilled and being commissioned to proclaim the gospel, overwhelm us as you overwhelm John. Remind us of what this is all about. Lord, help us to understand the greatness of the gospel and what it means for each and every one of us. Do this in the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. At productions such as plays, musicals, concerts, uh, after the performance has gone on for a while, usually there's a, a pause, a break in the action known as an intermission. 
and sets are changed and actors change costumes and musicians catch their breath. And those attending uh, stretch and refresh themselves get ready for the finale. An intermission implies there's an interval between the activities of the production. And as John unfolds the drama of the ages in the book of Revelation, he makes use of a, a slightly different device than the popular intermission. Instead, he uses what is called an interlude. And it's not a downtime like an intermission, but it's a time uh, where you sort of take a break for extra explanation and amplification. It's sort of like he's telling the story and then stops and says, let me tell you what's really going on. And uh, it allows the readers or the hearers to make sure that they grasp the message that's intended by the scenes that have been portrayed. And the pace is uh, changed to sort of reinforce that action. And so we had an interlude, if you remember, between uh, after the sixth seal, after the, uh, uh, the sixth seal came about, and before the breaking of the seventh seal. And we saw that back in chapters uh, six, seven, eight, and nine. And, uh, and then the seventh seal uh, broke, which brought on the seven trumpets, which we've seen in chapters eight and nine. And uh, that interlude reminded, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, reminded the church of God's care for them while they're in the world. And uh, that, that they would be sealed and protected for much of the tribulation and, and from the judgment that's coming on the world. Not from all of it. There would still be persecution and oppression, but ultimately they have God's seal. They are claimed by him. And so uh, they are marked off or sealed as belonging to God. And effectively showed the Lord distinguishes between those who are receiving his wrath and those who are receiving the blessing of sonship through the sacrificial death of Christ. His protection is uh, complete with none being lost whom Christ has secured by his death and none bearing judgment for whom Christ has already been judged at the cross. Second, John reminds us of the future. And here's the blessed hope of the Christian that in the midst of suffering and oppression and disease, destruction of every sort, particularly those that result from clinging to the cross, that our suffering cannot compare with the glory that lies ahead. And yet the seventh seal will be broken one day and the uh, consuming fire of God's wrath will fall upon the earth. And the interlude reminds us the end is yet to come. And then to show the same picture from a different angle, all the same scenes from a different perspective, John reveals seven trumpets. And he layers them on top of the seals and shows us another viewpoint of God's unfolding judgment throughout history. And between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we have another interlude take place. And while the first one uh, that we saw between the sixth and seventh seal dealt with the believer's security, the second interlude, our passage today, deals with the believer's activity. So it has a whole different purpose. The first one was you are secure. The second one is you need to be active. 
Yeah, even while struggling with all the suffering and with the world's rage. Christians are always to be about the work of the gospel, both in applying it and proclaiming it. And times of uh, suffering and adversity are no exception, but instead we're going to see that they are the best times for proclaiming the gospel. So what does John show us through this interlude? Well, we're back in Revelation again in deep waters, now the deep waters of chapter 10. And we're going to start by seeing a demonstration of divine strength. A demonstration of divine strength. I know it's not me. It is warm in here, right? Good. Because I'm dying. (laughs) Starting at verses 1 through uh, halfway through verse 3, we read, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the, on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. You got to get this picture in your head, this image of this angel. This is a giant angel. It reflects divine majesty. He comes down out of heaven, which tells us that in John's vision, he's now back on earth. He's no longer in heaven. And given the aura of having been around the throne of God, uh, this mighty angel is wrapped or clothed in a cloud. And then there's a rainbow, which represents God's faithfulness to his, uh, as a covenant-keeping God, his faithfulness to his people, and it gives this mighty angel an unusually distinct hat. He's wearing the rainbow, kind of as a hat. I like hats, so I throw that in. His face, like that of Moses when he came down from the mountain, after being with God, reflects something of the divine glory by shining like the sun, and his purity and strength are found in feet, uh, legs like pillars of fire. Now, if you look at it, he almost sounds like Jesus. Some of the descriptions are similar to some of the descriptions we get at the beginning of the book of Jesus. And there are some respected scholars who think this is a Christophany, which means it's a term that's used in the Old Testament for appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. But there are some problems with that view. John never in the book of Revelation, calls Jesus an angel. That never happens in the New Testament, only in the Old Testament. But rather, he shows Christ's authority over angels. Angels bow in worship before Christ. And remember, John is one who's seen the exalted Lamb of God. And surely he would not uh, fail to recognize him and worship him if he sees him again. Remember, Christ... Uh, received the scroll. He was the only one worthy to open the scroll. No one else was worthy to open it. Well, this angel comes down, and he has a little scroll, and it's already open in his hand. And later, the angel swears by him who lives forever and ever. But Christ has no need to swear by another since there is no one greater. So it seems that it is uh, exactly what the text says, a mighty angel, big, 
angel, giant angel. It's not your run-of-the-mill, typical angel like that you would normally see. So why the mighty angel? Well, it seems that what John does is to help the little churches of Asia Minor. Remember, everything we read in Revelation relates back to those seven churches. And, the, and not just those churches, but the multitudes who followed Christ throughout the ages. And he's helping them to get a clearer picture of the strength of our God and of his gospel. And here this mighty angel, reflecting the divine glory, plants his feet on sea and on land, as we're told three times. And so declaring that his message involves the whole world, so that Christians need not shy away at the challenge to both live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. We may be weak, but we have a God who is strong and powerful. So we can confidently face the demands and the pressures of the world as his gospel messengers. But John just isn't sent on his way with a vision of an awesome angel. But rather he hears a voice from heaven with a word of divine restraint. Divine restraint. Picking up halfway through verse 3. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's John's purpose, right? Is to write everything down that he sees. And he's told, do not write it down. The angel cries out with a loud voice. John says the sound is like a lion roaring. We get the picture of this message sort of reverberating between heaven and earth at the angel's declaration. And then John tells us when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. We have lots of sevens in Revelation. We had seven churches. We have seven angels. We've had seven um, seals and seven trumpets. Seven bowls are still coming. Lots of sevens. It's a key symbol. It's not just a number. It's a symbol of things being complete and under God's control. So you expect the seven thunders to be uh, yet another revelation of how God's judgment is going to unfold in the world, especially, especially since we've already uh, associated thunder with the ominous presence of the Lord and with his judgments. And surely God is preparing to give us uh, more details of judgment perhaps even of things affecting uh, unbelievers and the suffering of believers. You know, it seems that's what's going on. And, and John says himself, when the seventh thunder sounded, I was about to write. He's ready. He's got his pad and paper out. Probably one of those long skinny pads like reporters use, you know. You know, write everything down. And he responds just as we might have responded uh, with an eagerness to record the details. But then we read, I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the point is made. John doesn't tell us what the thunders declared because Christ restrained his pen. Why did the Lord, whom I believe is implied by uh, the voice from heaven, why did the Lord... Uh, 
this voice that restrains him tell him to keep this revelation to himself? You know, the whole book, Revelation, is about unveiling and, and uh, revealing things and telling people what's going on and what's going to happen. This seems kind of out of character, you know, except for this part. Well, I think there's lots of possible reasons. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us exactly. It just says don't write it down. But some of the possible reasons that seem to fit with the whole book and uh, with all of the scriptures as well, is God reserves some things for his glory. God reserves some things for his glory. Job discovered that God hasn't disclosed all things, but reveals what we need to know, uh, what we need to live uh, before God. So that's the first thing. God reserves some things for his own glory. Second, uh, we shouldn't try to probe beyond what God has revealed. That which he has shown us through the revelation of uh, Holy Scripture is fully sufficient for all things. What that means is we really have no business being end time speculators. God has spoken clearly enough and on enough subjects regarding how to live until the end. And we enter into foolishness when we delve into that which God has restrained from us. Third, there's some things that we don't need to know because we can't handle them. We have finite minds and finite understanding. God is infinite with infinite wisdom. And uh, the decrees of God would be too much to handle, too much to absorb. And so we're told that some things are the things of God and are not meant for us. We get that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And to be certain, God has revealed everything that we need to know. If we need to know, God's told us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent uh, equipped for every good work. No other promise needs to be given by which we, we need to partake of Christ and of his nature. Second Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious <coughs> and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of, of sinful desire. So we're given everything that we need for life and godliness and to partake uh, of Christ and his nature. <coughs> and then uh, we're no other facts. No other facts need to be offered to convince the mind, excuse me. <coughs> oh, I got something caught in my throat. And try that again. No other facts need to be offered uh, to convince the minds that God created the heavens and the earth. 
all the angels throughout Revelation, they appeal to God as the creator. They swear by the one who made the heavens and everything in them, who made the earth and everything in them, who made the sea and everything in them. They swear by God as creator. Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of him and there is nothing hidden from his heat. Creation itself testifies to the creator. That's what Psalm 19 is telling us. We can go to Romans, a number of other passages. The creation itself testifies to the creator. So there's nothing else we need to be given to know that, there, that God is the creator of all things. There's no more truth necessary for us to believe that God is one. He's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three distinct persons, and there is no other gospel that needs to be offered other than the one which is of Christ crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The Apostle Paul's writing this to the church. He says, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Now we may not grasp any of these things, and yet the problem is not insufficient revelation. If there's a problem, it's insufficient belief on our part. But then to encourage us, the message changes from one of divine restraint to one of divine fulfillment. Divine fulfillment, that's your third blank, starting at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, remember, we're in between the sixth and seventh trumpets right now. So in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And of course, we know if you look ahead, that halfway through chapter 11, the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and glory, which is the aim, ultimately, of the seventh trumpet. There we read, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices saying in heaven, or loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now that's not the end of the book of Revelation. It seems that would be a good place to end it. 
But God doesn't end it there. Rather, it's a snapshot of the end before John will backtrack and fill in more details, layering scene upon scene, letting us see things from another uh, vantage point. Now we're still in the interlude period between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And as the book unfolds the judgments of God, we see this wonderful paradox of how Christians live in the midst of God judging the world. And we're to live in anticipation of the full revelation of the kingdom of God. And throughout the Bible, God preached the good news of his kingdom to his servants, the prophets. It says he announced to his servants, the prophets. The Greek word is euangelion, which we get evangelized from, but it literally means preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news. And that's what God did. He proclaimed the good news to his servants, the prophets. That's what that verse means. And here's this uh, word that actually lifts up his servants, the prophets, who gave us biblical revelation that the advent, the second coming, and the reign of Christ, the sovereign Lord, is the sum of the biblical message. That in the fullness of the kingdom, Christ will be recognized and acknowledged by all creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we see that several places in the Bible. One of those, we read that in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Whether they're bowing and confessing now or not, someday they all will. And then we read again in Revelation 11, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we get the sense that it's all coming. We're getting to the end. And John pictures this strong angel whose strength planted his feet on land and on sea as he swears by the God of all creation. And these struggling believers in these seven churches, and many like them in our own day, may have felt that God's mighty kingdom was never going to come. It wasn't going to come in all its fullness. And the promises of Christ's eternal reign uh, seemed so distant to them and so unrealistic while they're just facing all this suffering and persecution and hardship. And while they're having to deal with the seduction of the world and materialism and wealth and power. And so John's directing our attention to this great angel of colossal size standing on the sea and on the land and yet in acknowledged humility as one weaker swears by one who is greater. And so this mighty angel swears by the creator of all things. Over and over in Revelation, we find mention of God as creator. In a world that pounds us 
again and again with Big Bang and evolution and spontaneous generation, we need to pause and reflect on the grand reality that God created the heavens and the earth. And the mighty angel specifies God as creator of heaven, earth, and sea, and all things in them. Nothing is created apart from his will and power exercised in creation. All things are sustained by him who rules the heavens and the earth. And what is it that the angel swears? He swears that there would be no more delay. No more delay. The point is that the sounding of the seventh trumpet, nothing else stands in the way of the culmination of God's kingdom in all its fullness. Humanity's rebellion, Satan's adversity, the world's opposition, sin's dominion will all come to an end. What Christ did at the cross is brought to its ultimate conclusion. The good news that was told to Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the other prophets is brought to its grand finale. And when that happens, no more opportunity to hear the mystery of the gospel. When that happens, the opportunity to hear the gospel will cease. It won't exist anymore. And John is burning that in our mind by this scene. Be no more preaching, no more witnessing, no more praying for the conversion of unbelievers is going to take place. He says the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Both the mystery of redemption, which we see throughout Scripture, and the mystery of judgment uh, reach their climax. And consequently, we have to draw some several uh, deductions from that. First, there's a warning here for those who are reluctant to hear and obey God's word. The time will come when there's no more time left for delaying. Someday you will run out of time to turn to God, to respond to the gospel, to hear and obey the word of God. Second, those who are defiant of the gospel are warned when a day is coming when you can no longer be defiant of the gospel when you can no longer defy Christ and his gracious offer in the gospel. Third, that call to proclaim the mystery of Christ will last until the last trumpet sounds. We're not off duty until that divine signal. There is no retirement from preaching the gospel from proclaiming the gospel, from telling others about Jesus. We have continue to announce the good news until the last trumpet sounds. Our work isn't over until God says that it's over. And fourth, God's revelation, this mystery, is made known until the last trumpet. There's actually tremendous grace and mercy poured out here on the last pages of Holy Scripture that the offer of the gospel will be made available until the very, very end when the last trumpet sounds. That's still available. And because of all of that, because the warning and yet the grace that's going out with the gospel, that is going out until the last trumpet, 
Because of all that, John is given a divine commission. Verses 8 through 10. A divine commission. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open, and the hand of the angel is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. I don't know if I could do that. Giant angel, scroll. I'm not sure I could say anything to the giant angel. You know? Hey, you. Give me the scroll. I, I, I don't see it. But John does. And he says, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Back in chapter 5, we already considered the prominence of the scroll that was held in the hand of the one sitting on the throne, taken by the Lamb of God, who alone is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And that scroll compromised all of God's plan, all of his eternal decree, all of human history, the totality of redemption and judgment is, com is comprised in that scroll that Christ alone can open. And in that opening, the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ is highlighted. But now John has mentioned another scroll. This one's called a little scroll to distinguish it from the scroll with the seven seals. He mentioned the scroll back in verse 2 and then sort of dropped its discussion until we get here to verses 8 through 11. And so he introduces the uh, subject of the scroll. Then he goes on and amplifies uh, several more important uh, foundational points. And now he comes back to the little scroll. Now, New Testament scholars debate the meaning of the little scroll in the angel's hand. Some think it's the same as the big scroll uh, that we read about in chapter 5. Others think it's an abbreviated version, like the Reader's Digest version of the big scroll. But John's word for it is literally translated as a little scroll. It's a different word. And I believe that offers a distinction from the other scroll of which Christ alone is worthy to open and look into. And if the scroll of chapter 5 addresses the totality of divine rule throughout history, it seems strange that John could take a scroll that only Christ alone is worthy to open and consume it since he's the one in need of divine rule. He's not a dispenser of divine rule. On the other hand, if the little scroll just deals with one central message of the big scroll, which is the gospel of the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then it makes sense why John should take it and eat it and proclaim it. And that's our premise here, that the little scroll that John speaks of refers to that mystery of the gospel that's proclaimed throughout the ages and still proclaimed today as the only way to God. This little scroll, which here he specifies as the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land, contains the details of redemption and judgment 
through the gospel. The scroll is open. It is not hidden. It doesn't have undisclosed details. And here God has spoken clearly. Now this actually reminds me, go all the way back to John chapter 3. We all, or many people know John 3.16. If nothing else, you know it's a sign at football games. Um, and lots of people memorize it, and it's a great verse to memorize. Fortunately, they don't memorize the, the next part, verses 17 and 18, which are in your outline. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may, might be saved through him. That's a promise of the gospel for those who believe. But then that same passage continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The gospel contains both promises of redemption through Christ for all that believe, and it also contains the certainty of judgment for those who don't believe. Jesus declares that if you don't presently believe, then you are already judged for your unbelief. You're condemned for rejecting the gracious offer of God through his son. And now the apostle John is told to take the scroll that is opened. God's revelation of redemption through the gospel is available and understandable. And that, that's the mercy of God in and of itself. Do you realize the kindness of God that's been shown to you in giving you the gospel in your own language? There's been millions of people throughout history haven't been extended such mercy. And yet God has given you the gospel. Take the scroll. Take the gospel. God has made himself known. And now the angel gives John this strange command that uses metaphorical language to help us to understand our relationship to the gospel. It says, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And that which tastes sweet can also turn bitter. And that reminds us of our responsive reading this morning from Ezekiel. It's drawing on that passage where the prophet was told to eat a scroll which tasted sweet. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1. He said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it and then it or then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, it's a clear reference back from Revelation to Ezekiel. Take and eat it. As the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here is an open scroll. John can read its message. He takes and eats it. He feeds upon the gospel. He finds new strength and sweetness in the gospel. For all that hear and understand, the gospel is sweet. And yet there's bitterness when the gospel is rejected. There's a certainty of judgment declared by it. Just as Ezekiel would discover that his word would go out to a rebellious house, that text says. And John's going to discover that what tastes sweet in the mouth can turn bitter in the stomach. John, like Ezekiel, must proclaim a message that contains Notes of judgment. 
That happened to a lot of the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah. Remember Isaiah was given to go to preach to Israel? And it was a really rough message. It was very tough. It was a call to repentance that they don't really know God. And he was like, how long? After I do that, do I get to preach the good stuff? And he says, nope. That's the message. That's the only message you get. Go preach it. He'll preach it all the way up until they kill you for it. Because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> you know, that's what happens. And that's what happened with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're told to go and proclaim people to call them to repentance. And now John has to do the same thing. He says there's judgment coming. You need to repent. And when the message is taken to the nations of the world, the experience will be a bitter one. The whole gospel is both sweet and bitter. John's bitterness in the stomach implies that it's internal, something within the believer. The gospel that liberates all who believe is the word, same word by which those who refuse to believe will be judged. And John, as with all those who are faithful in proclaiming the gospel, knows the sweetness of those who believe in Christ as revealed in the gospel, and yet also knows the bitterness that's experienced by seeing Christ rejected and sinful men condemned. And yet John doesn't hesitate. He doesn't hesitate at all. He says, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The gospel proclaimed gives hope when believed. The prophetic word refers to declaring the gospel, and although John is an old man by this time, He's reminded that the work of proclaiming the gospel wasn't finished. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's important to keep in mind that Revelation is not a chopped up book, but when they first heard it, it was read in its entirety to the church. And what is said in chapter 10 connects with what was said in chapter 9 and what's said in chapter 11. We've already noted a lot of the connection with chapter 9 and the trumpet sounding. Chapter 11 tells us about the activity of the church prior to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And the church will have periods of great power and periods of great suffering. It will face the world's animosity for its proclamation of the gospel. And in these verses, John receives uh, a renewed sense of receiving a divine commission for the proclamation of the gospel. And there's the implication that John's commission is our commission as well. That you've got to go and proclaim the gospel to all the peoples, to all the nations, until the seventh trumpet sounds. And that's the same commission for us. Imagine for a moment that you're at a great sporting event. Since we're in Revelation, we're talking about the future. Let's say it's the 2010 World Series. Okay? 
The Red Sox, <laughs> having crushed the Yankees all season long. Hey, it's my vision, okay? They're now leading the Dodgers 1-0 on a Dustin Pedroia double off the wall that scored Jacoby Ellsbury all the way from first. It's the ninth inning of the seventh game. Now there's one out. The Red Sox are in the field. The Dodgers are at bat. And Manny Ramirez is coming to the plate. And you're on the edge of your seat. You just know the Sox are going to bring in Jonathan Papelbon to put the game away. And you're already making plans to attend the victory parade. And sure enough, Terry Francona, the Red Sox manager, comes out of the dugout. But instead of motioning to the bullpen, he starts looking around in the stands. In fact, he's looking right to the section of the stands that you're sitting in, and he's looking right at you. And he has the ball in his hand. And he locks eyes with you, and he, he motions for you to come out onto the field. And the crowd is silent. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And Francona calls you out of the stands. And he has the ball in his hand. He says, hey, I need you to pitch. You've got to get the last two outs and close out the game. And he hands you the ball. And he says, remember, everybody's watching. But I know you can do it. We're counting on you. And so in a daze, you kind of walk out of the stands and out onto the field. You walk out to the mound, and all this time, the thought is going through your head, what's going on? What can I possibly do to win this game? I mean, if those other guys, you know, the professional ball players, if they can't put it away, how am I going to close it out? And there's tens of thousands of people in the stands. They're all watching you. And there's millions at home watching on TV, totally fixated on you. And Red Sox Nation is in a total panic, screaming at the top of their lungs, complete meltdown, worse than any snowstorm. <laughs> and you're standing on the mound all by yourself. That's how the Apostle John is feeling right here. So far, he's been a spectator. He was moved to tears in chapter 5. He exchanged a few words with a minor player in chapter 7. But for the most part, he's been a spectator. At most, he's been like a reporter taking notes on what he's seeing and hearing. Amazing scenes played out by angels. Visions of the throne room of heaven. Even of the Lamb of God himself. It's been a wonderful awe-inspiring message of hope to take back to a church that's under tremendous pressure. But now at the height of the action, a voice from heaven speaks to him, John. Yes, you, John. You see that little scroll a mighty angel is holding? Go and take it, learn it, digest it, understand it, then go and preach it. John, it's up to you now. What, me? Are you kidding me? Why can't the big angel finish it off? <laughs> Send more angels. Let them do it. I mean, if they can't close out this drama, what do you expect me to do? They can't do it, John. Angels are powerful, but they're not part of how the salvation story ends. You are. They can't proclaim the gospel. They can't teach the church. They can't tell your friends about Jesus, but you can. It's up to you and that little scroll. 
And here's the paradox of judgment, that God would give us the little scroll, the gospel, to deliver us who deserve his judgment. And on that same scroll, there is hope through Christ for all who believe and certainty of judgment for those who refuse to believe. With sweetness, some believe, and with bitterness, some remain in unbelief. And yet for the glory of Christ among all peoples, we must proclaim the good news of the Son of God dying for sinners and rising from the dead to give life to all that believe. By that word of the gospel, each of us is either saved or condemned. And the question is, which is it for you? Which is it for you? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing more of Jesus to us. For those of us who need a word of hope to make it through the week, give that to us. For those of us who need a word of uh, challenge, give that to us. For those of us who need to be rebuked, do that as well. And through it all, help us to focus on Jesus. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you no matter what. Make us people who can tell others about Jesus. We ask this in the name of your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.